I'm Kimberly Amici. Welcome to the Build Your Best Family podcast. This is a practical show to help you imagine, plan, and build your best family. We believe that the secret to having a happy family is not being perfect, but having purpose. Each week, I'll be here sharing with you lessons I've learned, conversations I've had that will equip you to create new habits, challenge mindsets, and build relationships that will allow your family to thrive. When someone talks about bringing baggage into a relationship, they're referring to emotional or psychological issues, past experiences, or unresolved problems that can negatively affect their present or future. But what if the baggage we carry can be used for good instead? This week's guest, Ike Miller, wrote a practical guide for navigating our journey called Good Package, How Your Difficult Childhood Prepared You for Healthy Relationships. In it, he helps readers understand how a traumatic childhood continues to affect us in ways we may not even realize, and then he moves us through a healing process. In our conversation today, we talked about how to identify coping mechanisms that don't really benefit us anymore, the ruthless cycle that can sabotage our relationships, and six aspects of good baggage that our childhood experiences can provide. I love that this message focuses on how we can redeem a broken past and use what we've experienced for good. Welcome, Ike. It is incredible to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to our conversation. So a question we ask all of our guests is, what is your family known for? Yeah, you know, I I don't know if this is positive or negative, but I would say Sharon and I at least are known for taking on too much, (laughs) you know, finding ourselves in situations where we're like, you know, five years from now, we'll look back and think, what were we thinking? And uh, we just kind of keep finding ourselves in that. And so I think some of it is we operate well when we've got a lot going on, but also that gets us in trouble when we overextend ourselves. (laughs) Oh, I can imagine. So if I come over your house, what can I expect? What's the kind yeah. of atmosphere we ha- you have in your home? Yeah, you know, so we have two boys and a girl. They are 11, 8, and 5, and so it's very loud. <laughs> you know, the, you know, Sharon won't let this happen, but if you came over unexpectedly, probably the couches would be torn apart, you know, <laughs> be stuff, you know, forts being built and that kind of thing, kids in the backyard playing. And then we have a crotchety old chihuahua that is 18 <sighs> years old and, you know, making her way around. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, we, we really try to be intentional about our, our time together as a family. And mm-hmm. so when it comes to out of hours, out of work hour time, it's, it's for the most part spent together as much as mm-hmm. possible. And so that intentionality around kind of what can be predictable for our kids in terms of afternoons, evenings, times together mm-hmm. is big. So Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I know like I have older children and I really feel like I'm starting to see the fruit of like dragging them to each other's sports events, yeah. <laughs> you know, like making sure, you know, when we do have free time that we're like spending time together. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I'm I'm starting because for a while, if <laughs> <laughs> it felt like we were forcing them to do a lot of things yeah. we did not want to do. We were actually forcing them to have fun sometimes, but yeah. I definitely have seen the fruit of that. Yeah, no, that's yeah. so good. Well, and they kind of learn to support each other and encourage each other yeah. in a way in that. It's really good. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So 
your book focuses on redeeming the pain of childhood. So I'm guessing your childhood was not like what the, the one that you are creating for your family right now. That is very true. <laughs> so yeah. So you can you just share with us a little bit about your journey and then what inspired inspired you to write about this topic? Yeah. So my journey, I grew up with a father who had an alcohol use disorder or alcoholism. And from a very early age that was going on and that caused all kinds of, you know, challenges in my parents' marriage, ultimately leading to their separation and divorce. It also led to, you know, challenges with me and my siblings in relationships and how we saw our family dynamics and those kinds Mm -hmm. of things. And so childhood home was a bit chaotic in terms of, you know, what was going on and uh, parents arguing and a lot of nights going to bed to the sound of parents arguing. Mm. My father could be quite harsh and quite and at times abusive. And so that was sort of the environment that I grew up in. And quite honestly, I think because of you know, having a youth group and having places where I could talk about these kinds of things. I think I felt like by the time I reached my early 20s, I had worked through a lot of that. And then getting married myself and realizing, no, I hadn't worked through it. I just didn't have to confront it until you're in your own marriage. (laughs) And, you know, you start seeing things come out that for lack of better information, you just repeat what you saw you know, and so realizing, oh, man, there's more of that in me than I thought. And really a big part of me coming to realize that this was something that needed to be a bigger conversation was as a pastor, I during the pandemic was realizing the ways that some of this was coming out in my leadership. And in particular, you know, Growing up in a context with an alcoholic, uh, a major dynamic that begins to play out is codependency, you know, where all of your existence is about how do I keep the peace? How do I keep this person in particular, my father, uh, content and happy? How do I manage his emotions and reactions with my words and actions? And I just realized I had transferred that to my entire church. where I was trying to manage everybody's emotions and reactions with my words and actions. And that's exhausting. You can't do that. And so again, realizing, okay, there's still some stuff that's playing out here. But in the midst of that, I also realized as I learned more about my childhood and its impact, I also began to learn the ways that it had put tools in me that actually could prepare me for things like better leadership and better relationships if I could learn how to leverage them. So for example, one of the easy examples of this is growing up in the kind of environment that I did and any kind of chaotic environment, you learn to walk into a room and kind of read the emotional climate of the room. You know, are people happy? Are they sad? Are they angry? Is it safe to be here? Do I need to find a way out? You know, and so you walk into rooms as an adult and you're looking for and reading emotional climate. How are people doing? And that can serve us negatively when we take on, okay, it's my job to make everybody feel better. But the ways that that can be used for our good is to be able to say in moments where we're in a tense conversation or maybe things are getting heated to be able to say, you know, I realize the the, the emotion is building up in this. Maybe we need to take a moment and step back and say kind of what's going on below the surface a few layers. 
And that allowing space for vulnerability to open up to say, you know, when you said this, this is what I heard you saying. This is the story I told myself. And that can lead to a more productive conversation because you could say, okay, let's step back and and talk through kind of the emotion that's rising in the room. And so that led then to kind of realizing, okay, you know, yes, our difficult childhoods put things in us that we've got to work through, but it also puts some stuff in us that if we could learn how to leverage it could actually benefit our relationships now. And so that's how this book came to be. <laughs> yeah. I love the emphasis on what are, what did I develop that I could use for good? And and the name of your book is called good baggage. And I know yeah. that when we think of baggage, it's not usually good, that's right. um, but I, I, I always feel as though there's got to be something that is good coming out of this. What can I learn from it? What can I learn about myself, you know, I was just thinking today about my childhood and then some conflict that me and my husband are having. And I'm like, Lord, you literally put me with somebody and this, I'm sure it's common. You've heard this before with someone that taps into the one thing, right. That I struggled with growing up. And then I was really just trying to process through, this is what it was like in my home. And now my husband has brought this to the marriage. And I'm like, could you not just do that one? <laughs> so I'm like, Lord, I, I want I want to be able to not stay stuck. Yeah. And so how does that happen? So I love, I love this book. I love the idea of it for sure. You know, that's really so fascinating that you say that. And that's something I go into the book. And I know this, is, it's not off topic, but it's not where you're mm-hmm. going necessarily. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I learned as I was studying and researching for this book is that our childhoods shape our brains relationally and chemic, like relationally and wiring wise in such a way that we develop an idea of what is familiar relationally. And so then when we grow up and find our own relationships, we are not attracted necessarily to what is quote healthy, but what is familiar because we're comfortable with familiarity. So even if it, you know, is dysfunctional and healthy, we're drawn to what is familiar. And so it's really interesting, regardless of, you know, the level of dysfunction or whatever we experienced, it helps explain, you know, why do I find myself in a relationship with someone that is similar to the dynamics of my childhood? Well, it's because you're, you're attracted to what's familiar. Yeah. And a lot of us say, I'll never be with someone like that, or I'll never be like that. And that's exactly where we end up and exactly what happens. So there is something to breaking free from Mm -hmm. unhealthy cycles. It's not just saying, oh, yeah, I'm never going to do that. That's right. Yeah. So let's talk about survival mechanisms. We do. We develop coping skills as children. You said with your dad, like learning how to read the room and trying to be responsible for his his emotions. What What are some other coping mechanisms that we will pick up? And then how do we identify them? How do we know, wait, this is not serving me well right now? Yeah. So there's, a, and, and it depends on the context that we're in, you know, and the, in the, the dynamics of our particular childhood, but some other ways that we develop coping mechanisms as children is one can be related to the role that we play in the family. And so we may take on sort of a hero role where we feel that it is our responsibility to control and to make sure outcomes are okay and our siblings are safe and that they're okay and that they're taken care of. And, you know, one example that somebody shared with me is that they grew up in a context where they had a sibling that was very sick. And so there was a lot of attention that was given to that sibling, rightfully so, but that left them in a place of feeling like, okay, it's not okay for me to need anything. 
And so how do I cope with that? Well, it's by making sure I'm taken care of. Nobody else takes care of me. I need to take care of myself, right? And so we develop those coping mechanisms. Another one can be a tendency to assume that the reason things are happening is everybody else's fault and we don't take responsibility for anything. And as an, as an adult, then we carry that into our relationships as an adult where it's everybody else's fault. It's everybody else's responsibility. And I think the important thing is first for us to honor the work that our younger selves did to help us survive whatever the dynamics were of our childhood. It was it was crucial work. And so instead of shaming our younger selves, being able to say, thank you for the work that you did to help me survive that. But then being able to do the work to say, okay, how is that affecting me now? How is that continuing to play out now in my life? I love another Kobe mechanism can be a an escape to kind of a fantasy reality. As children, we live inside the worlds of the books that we read, the stories that we read, the TV shows that we watch. And so there can be an escape to some sort of fantasy reality. Others can be along the lines of the the people pleaser, the mascot of the family. I just am whoever, whoever wants, wants me to be. That's how I bring contentment and, and peace to the family. That's where I feel most secure. Um, and so there's a number of roles that, that we take on or coping mechanisms we develop to just survive those dynamics. Yeah. I love that you brought up shame because when we think about our past, we think about what we should have done differently or why was my situation like this? And we carry that. And I think shame is one of those sneaky things that operate in our life that we don't even realize. And yeah, I think that's important to understand and identify that. Yeah. You know, shame as I, so a part of my story is with my father's alcoholism, realizing that that addictive tendency or personality is in me as well. And a Mm -hmm. part of me kind of hitting my own wall was realizing that I was taking some anxiety medication and taking more of it than I should have been and sort of starting to misuse it. And so in doing my own kind of counseling with um, an addiction counselor, one of the things that he talked about is how shame is this thing that sort of functions in our subconscious in a way that we're not always aware that it's functioning. And yet we're always trying to quiet it and silence it. And for those of us who grew up in sort of addictive context, there is this powerful shame voice of you're not good. You're not, you're not okay. And realizing that one of the most powerful ways that we silence that ourselves is through the misuse of substances and that was so powerful for me because I think we hear all the time, you know, 70% of uh, children of alcoholics become alcoholics themselves. And I kind of was like, you know, I, I understand like that that's an inherited thing. But at the same time, some people have parents who don't become alcoholics until after they're born. And so what's the dynamic there? And when you bring in that shame piece of some of our, our substance misuse is trying to silence shame makes so much more sense. Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. They don't they don't know that they're carrying shame. They yeah. they then pass it down to yeah. other people and they use those things to cope. And so yeah. that's that's really interesting. That's really insightful. Yeah. I mean, we touched a little bit about relationships already, but talk to us about this idea of a ruthless cycle that sabotages mm-hmm. our relationships because 
gosh, I think of my own journey and my marriage and relationships and we get caught in this cycle and it's so hard to make the move to get out of it. So tell us more about that and how it affects our ability to build healthy connections. Yeah. So as I thought about my own relationships and other relationships with similar dynamics, you know, this, this idea of codependency that I mentioned earlier is really at the root of a lot of it. And when we think about codependence, we typically think of people pleasing and approval seeking, but those are symptoms of the deeper issue, which is codependency is a trauma related loss of self. What that means is at some point we went through something in our life that we had to be someone other than ourselves in order to survive. And so that can be a deep trauma or it could just be a dysfunctional relationship where we had to be who somebody else wanted us to be. And the result of that is we have lost a clear sense of who we are. We don't know who we are apart from who we are to other people. And so we don't have a clear identity. And so codependency is kind of the first step in this cycle, which then leads to the step, second step of approval seeking. Because we don't know who we are, we don't know how to uh, bring validation and affirm ourselves. And so we get that by seeking the approval of others. And our approval and our affirmation comes from other external sources of approval. And then the third step in this cycle is when we aren't able to gain other people's approval, or maybe we have created an identity for ourselves that that demand us meeting certain expectations. And when we're not able to live up to those expectations, or we're too exhausted to keep up those expectations, we fall into deception. In other words, we try to deceive others into believing that we are this image that we've presented of ourselves. And so that then sabotages the relationship because not only is are, do they not know who we are because we've just been whoever they wanted us to be, but now we are deceiving them into believing that we are someone other than who we actually are. And so you're creating greater and greater distance in those relationships. And ultimately, when that deception is unveiled, there's also now the breaking of the relationship because uh, of the broken trust that that we are not who we have said we were. And so the cycle is the cycle of codependency, approval seeking, deception. And then the the fourth piece that I get into is boundary issues. We use deception as a kind of protection in our relationship, meaning, I don't feel safe enough yet to be vulnerable with you, to tell you who I really am, to create the right kind of boundaries. And so I'm going to present an image of who I am, or I'm going to tell you things like, I don't feel safe to be with you, but I don't feel like I can tell you that. And so I'm going to make lots of excuses around why we can't be together or why we can't be in relationship with one another. And really what we need to learn how to do is have boundaries. How do we have emotional boundaries to say, I want to be in relationship with you, but you can't talk to me that way. Or I want to be in relationship with you, but if you're going to do these certain things, then I'm going to have to create this kind of distance. And the reason we don't have the ability to set boundaries is because we don't have the affirmation and the validation in ourselves to believe that apart from you, I can be okay that I can have validation in myself. And so we find ourselves back in that cycle again. That's why it's a cycle is I'm right back to approval seeking. I need your approval in order to be okay. And so that's kind of how the cycle goes on and on. 
Yeah. I mean, we're talking about it in the context of partnership, marriage, right? Yeah. With, of like yeah. a relationship with one other person. But yeah. I can see where moms can struggle with this in relationship with their kids. Absolutely. There's this, there's this thing about wanting to make your kids happy and wanting to please your kids and yeah. wanting your kids to think that you're a great mom. And yeah. as I became mom of teenagers, that mm-hmm. was a big struggle. It was like, okay, do I lay the law, <laughs> lay yeah, the law right. down and fear? You know, my, my big fear was ruining that relationship or, mm-hmm. or breaking that bond. Yeah. But really what was at stake was, am I going to stick to my values? Yeah. And are we going to continue to be the family that we believe that we should be? Yeah. And am I willing to make my children uncomfortable mm-hmm. to do what I believe is important? But yeah. I had to not look for others for affirmation and what I believed in order to be able yeah. to make that stand and sort of set that boundary. And so I can yeah. see, you know, as kids get older, where it's, you sometimes compromise and you, yeah. you depend on your children to fill you up and you depend on your children to give you the thumbs up for the choices that you're making as a mom or a family. And that is not a good thing. Well, you no, know, you're exactly right. And that the idea that it, and as parents, but I know, especially as moms, our identity can become so integrated with our being a mom. Mm-hmm. My identity mm-hmm. is that I'm a mom. And so what happens with identity is value is connected to that. Yeah. My identity is not just I'm a mom, but I'm a good mom. Yeah. I find my value in that. And so that's what makes it hard when approval seeking comes in of like, I, I want to be seen as a good mom, but my child is really angry at me and they're yeah. rebelling against me. Yeah. And so what does that say about my identity? Right. Yeah. And yeah. that makes it really hard to, to parent well. Yeah. Especially if you grew up in a home where you didn't have the cool mom, but you want to be the cool mom. That's right. You know what I mean? Right. So then again, like what did we bring from our childhood that's preventing us from sticking to our values and standing up for what we believe in? And so Mm -hmm. that's something that I wrestled with and, and really said, okay, like where, where where are the boundary lines and what are we willing to do? What are we willing to sacrifice? What are we not willing to sacrifice? So that's, that's excellent. All right. So you talk about six aspects of good baggage that our childhood experiences can provide. So obviously these, our listeners need to get the book so they can understand (laughs) all of them, but can you just share with them real quickly and maybe just expand on one of those aspects? Yeah. So I'll walk through them. So the first one is we have a unique perspective on life, on relationships. We have, we're very intentional about relationships. We have a relational intentionality that comes from our desire to see our relationships go differently than our childhoods. Mm-hmm. We have empathy, that, that powerful ability to have empathy that goes back to the ability to walk into a room and read people. Mm-hmm. We're extremely loyal. You know, we grew up in an environment where even if we, knew that our context was unsafe or unhealthy, we were loyal to that because the relationship we had was better than the, you know, relationship of not being in a relationship with them. Sort of the evil we know is better than the evil we don't know. And so there's a lot of loyalty there. We're extremely responsible. And so this can go one of two ways. Some of us respond to childhoods by being super responsible. Others respond by being very irresponsible. So I talk about being very responsible as one of those good baggage elements. And then we have a a desire for healthy romance, healthy romantic relationships as adults, because we want to see, again, go differently than the relationships of our childhood. So those are the six elements that I talk about. But the one that I want to hit on the most, because I think it really connects with your vision for this podcast and what you are all about 
about is this idea of relational intentionality. And like I said, I think one of the biggest things we bring out of our childhoods, whether we have really done the work to heal or not, is at all costs, we want our relationships to go differently than what we saw. And so some of us may avoid relationships because no relationship is better than the relationship that we saw. But for others of us, we want to see a healthy, thriving marriage relationship. And we know the way we saw it as kids did not help. And so we're willing to do the work that maybe a parent wasn't willing to do. You know, for me in my context, one of the big obstacles I feel like for my father in dealing with his alcoholism was his pride. Right. To acknowledge that I need help, to acknowledge that I need to seek counseling and therapy. Pride got in the way. And so when I feel these moments of, man, if, if I seek out help for this, that's acknowledging I've got a problem. But you know what? Me getting help for this is better than what the pain is going to cause. It's going to put my wife through and my kids through if I don't get that help. And so I'm going to, I'm not going to let pride stop me from being intentional about my relationship. So that's one of the biggest one that drives all of the rest of these is that I have this driving passion to do the work, to leverage these things for the good of my relationships now. Yeah. Empathy is something that you mentioned that I struggle with. And I think when I really learned that I can, be empathetic with people. I don't have to have the same experience, but I can experience something. I've experienced things that have made me feel the same way. And I tap into that. That's what I'm I'm learning the working definition of empathy. It's (laughs) It's really helped me because you know, it's so easy to brush things off and be like, well, I I didn't go through that. My childhood wasn't like that, but to understand the feeling that you have, that, that, that shared emotion can can contribute. That's um, right greatly to your relationships and, and and help you to become a person that's compassionate. Yeah. Um, well, and I think in our marriages too, it's important to be able to distinguish between empathy and agreement. Meaning I think sometimes when we think of offering empathy, we have to also agree with them. And really empathy is not agreement. Empathy is simply making the person who is speaking feel heard and understood. Even if at the end of the day you disagree, that is essential to good communication. And so empathy being a big part of that. And yeah. 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 Definitely a work in progress for me. <laughs> because again, the best sometimes one of the coping mechanisms is not to feel sadness and to do everything that you can to not feel those feelings or to remember those feelings. Yeah. And, and I feel like there's a lot of things that I have unconsciously forgotten mm-hmm. and I know why. And sometimes as you become adults and as you you know, go back to your childhood home or have kids yourself, you start to remember those things. And you're like, oh, I don't, I don't want to, I want to push them away instead of yeah. really look at them and see them for what they were. So. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You talk about pushing those feelings away, I, you know, with your audience, families, I, I'm sure many of them have seen the movie Inside Out. And, you know, the, what's interesting with that movie is the, the joy part of her thinks like, you know, we cannot have sadness. We have to push sadness down. We have to keep sadness out mm-hmm. and it's gotta be about joy. It's gotta be about happiness. And in the end of the day, what actually leads to the restoring of the relationships at the end of the movie is actually letting sadness express itself and how that was actually the gateway to relational openness and healing was that vulnerability. And so, yeah, I mean, sometimes it does mean I've got to allow some of that sadness to be felt so that I know where's that coming from and what do we do about it? (laughs) Yeah. And I found that some of the greatest joys on the other end of that sadness. 
Yes, absolutely. Setting the boundaries, leaning into what might fall out and then have it redeemed is so much more amazing than just having things be perfect all the time. Well, in the relational connection that comes as a result of being transparent, you know, I think we can, we can try to be happy all the time. And then our relationships end up feeling fake because we've never expressed what we really feel. And some of my most powerful moments, I feel like Sharon with Sharon have been not those moments where I'm just crushing it. And I am like living my best life and I'm awesome and happy all the time. It's when I'm like, I'm really having a hard time with this. And I, you know, just need to be able to talk about this, or I feel like, we haven't been this close lately. And gosh, those moments where you articulate those feelings, actually, you feel so much closer all of a sudden because you actually are, you're sharing your internal world. (laughs) So we may have mentioned this and all the things you've already shared, but, you know, many people face obstacles when trying to establish those healthy relationships and break free from things that they experience. So what are the common obstacles that you've identified and how can we overcome them? Give us some practical steps. Yeah, I think the first thing is, is one recognizing in yourself that if I want things to go differently in my relationships than the relationships of my childhood, or even just past relationships as an adult, that's not just going to happen. I'm going to have to be intentional. I'm going to have to do some things differently. I'm going to have to seek some outside wisdom. And so first, just believing that and accepting that that is the truth, because we can end up going into another relationship with the best of intentions and thinking, okay, I just need to think about this differently. But we're going to repeat the same things that we did because we haven't sought better information and, and better insight. So being able to acknowledge this will only go differently if I have someone helping me think through how to do this differently or I'm reading and growing. But then the second step is to then be able to ask, what are the specifics of this? Uh, And this means, honestly, me being willing to dig into some pain. Where do I consistently feel frustration in relationships? Where do I consistently feel pain in relationships? And that opens the door to saying, okay, these are the areas, these are the places where work needs to be done. So for example, if I find myself in a marriage relationship where the sexual part of the relationship is really hard, then I need to do some work to investigate why. It's not just enough to just take that for granted. It's just hard that's not going to change it. It it means I've got to do the work to say, why is it hard? And then what is the next step that I need to do? Where do I seek help on that? And so really it's the, the phrase I use is following the pain. We don't want to dig into the pain, but following the pain is the only way we're going to get to the root cause of that pain. Briefly, just real quickly, I had a toothache several years ago. And the, the the dentist kept saying, you need to go to an endodontist, you need to get this checked out. And I was like, you know, I'll deal with it when it really starts hurting, you know. And they were like, it's going to blow up on you one day, and it's gonna be really bad. And I was like, okay, I'll deal with it when it gets there, you know. And sure enough, it was like Saturday morning, it just blows up. And I cannot get in, in touch with an endodontist, you know, and it's getting worse. And they give me some medicine for the pain. But really, the only solution is to get in there and they had to clear out the infection, they had to do the root canal, and then it's it's better. And I think a lot of us, we're treating symptoms, but we're not getting to the root cause. And so doing the work to find out what's the root cause and what do we do about it? Yeah, that's fantastic. Especially, I mean, it sounds like you're kind of debunking the idea that if it, if, if, if it was a good relationship, it would be easy. 
Yeah. Oh, right? yeah. Because <laughs> a lot of us believe that, that if this was the right choice, it would be easy. If it's the right career move, if it's the right relationship, then I uh, wouldn't have these problems. And that is absolutely not true. Yeah. John Gottman in his book, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work says, you know, there's this myth out there that the way that you find contentment in a relationship is by lowering your expectations. And he said, what research shows is it's actually those who had the highest expectations for the relationships and then did the work to see those fulfilled that actually experienced contentment. And just knowing, you know, this, what I tell all the couples that I do premarital counseling for is marriage is one of the few relationships or things in life, really, that the amount of work that you put into it correlates to your satisfaction in it and the amount of joy that you get out of it. And you will enjoy your marriage so much more if you are willing to put the work in to make it a great relationship. So yeah, you're exactly right. <laughs> oh, good. Well, that's a good note to end on. So yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for being with us today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. You can find Ike at IkeMiller.com. He's on Facebook as IkeMiller.7. He's on Instagram as IkeMiller. I'll link to all of that, plus where you can find his book in the show notes. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If so, I'd like to ask a favor. Can you head over to iTunes and leave us a review? Besides sharing this podcast with your friends, leaving a review is one of the most effective ways that you can support us and help get the word out about the incredible resources we have to offer. I'm passionate about helping families thrive and your reviews help families find us. And remember, family culture isn't about perfect, it's about purpose.